0: But today we want to launch a series on the question why. Did you know the Bible has a lot of things to say? I did a bit of a, a search on how, how many times um, the you know the, the question why appears in scripture. It is unbelievable. I remember for one solid year in uh, Wave Church on Sunday nights, I preached on questions in the Bible. And every time there's a question in the Bible, like for instance, Adam, where are you? God search for man. Who told you you were naked? And right from Genesis to Revelation for one solid year, I preached on questions in the Bible. So I think we've talked, we've answered a lot of things over many decades, but today I really want to drill in on a couple of thoughts. Here we go. So there's a lot of questions we have as to why some things happen to us or to other people we know. As a matter of fact, Job, actually, if anybody had the opportunity, the, the, what's the word I'm looking for? Looking for some sort of sense of, okay, it was fair enough to him to ask the question, it would be Job. Matter of fact, God was bragging on Job to Satan. uh, And Satan goes, well, you know, Lord, he's only good because you've blessed him. He goes, why don't you take your hand off him? Let me have a go at him. And let's see if he's as good as you say he is. The Lord obviously knew that what was in Job's heart, he's a good man. So God said, well, you can't kill him. You can't take his life. But I'll let you. I'll give you permission to, to test. And I tell you now, God wasn't doing it worried. He was trying to prove Job was going to make this test. But in the process, he had a lot of pain. He had a lot of heartache, a lot of sickness, a lot of loss, a lot of grief. He lost his kids. He lost his, his livestock. He lost the only thing was left was his wife. And you'd be praising God for that normally. But she even said, why don't you curse God and die? And he had sores all over him. I mean, he wounds. His breath was putrid. There was a stench about him. And finally, Job starts questioning God. Why? And, and in that, I wish I had time to unpack all this, maybe another day in another message. But, you know, God says, okay, Job, you're gonna question me. You're gonna ask me. And he goes, why, how, what, what's going on? And I love what God says when he answers Job. And if you read through it's an amazing account where God says to Job, well, clearly, if you feel like you could question me, you kind of feel like you're my equal. So, Job, where were you? When I made the heavens and the earth. Where were you when I gave the sea its boundary and the tides its limitations? Where were you when I flung the stars? Surely you were there, Job. Surely you feel like you were able to, you know, have a conversation with me. You want to question my goodness, my sovereignty. Where were you? And then Job repents and realizes it's not the question why, but it's the question who. And who Job trusts is God. And God is sovereign. He is Alpha and he is Omega. And so there's a great story. Job 42, this is where it comes down to. In verse one, then Job replied to the Lord. This is after the Lord said, where were you, Job, when I made the earth? Where were you when I gave the stars its, its light, the, the sun, its, 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 its shining, flaming power, the moon and everything is in perfect balance. And still to this day, NASA and the world are trying to discover the depths and the complexities of this universe. And now young people are all getting fascinated with aliens. They're they're asking questions about the things the Bible has nothing to say. If there are aliens, I want to tell you this. He is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Amen? And I don't understand why we get fixating on things that God clearly has nothing to say about in his word. And we're trying to actually make a whole major thing on something. If God, who is infinite and we who are finite is trying to reveal all who he is and all the universe, and he's the God of gods, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, why are we majoring on something when God in his infinite wisdom chose not, chose to be silent? Amen? What are we doing? We're chasing things. We're just, we're majoring on things that God clearly doesn't want us to even be majoring on. Now, I do also happen to think there are some stories in the Bible that talk about the sons of Anak and the sons of God and the sons of men and interbreeding, and that's a whole nother story. <laughs> Praise the Lord. Okay, so, so Job goes, I know that you can do all things. Now I know what he says. I know that you can do all things. No purpose of yours can be thwarted. You ask me Who is this that obscures my plans without knowledge? Surely I spoke of things I did not understand, things too wonderful for me to know. Listen, you said, listen now, and I will speak to you and I will question you. So Job's asking the question and then God says, Job, pull your head in. Job, get it together. I'm the God Almighty, the sovereign one. And God says, you want to ask me questions, but listen now, I'm going to ask you a question. Amen? So we have questions of God, but now God says, I'm going to ask you and you will answer me. And he says, my ears have heard of you, but now... My eyes have seen you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. See, the question is never really should have been asked why. The question is, do you trust him? Do you trust his goodness? Do you understand he is sovereign? He knows from beginning to the end. Come on, somebody say amen. And of course, at the end of Job's life, the Bible says he ended up with twice as much as he had before. And the Lord blessed the latter part of Job's life more than he did the beginning. Praise the Lord. With the same wife, I might add. Praise the Lord. Ecclesiastes 7, verse 10. Do not say, why were the old days better than these? Uh, Oh, I love that. That's a whole message about old wineskin and new wineskin. That's a whole teaching in and of itself. But the Bible says, don't ask. Why were the old days better than these? Now, the truth is, let's be honest, were the old days really better? Like when you think about it, I remember the church I got saved in, and trust me, I mean, it was just an old warehouse. We got married in an old warehouse. There was nothing beautiful, charming about the church. It was this old rundown, but God was turning up in a warehouse. And the songs we used to sing, oh my gosh, they were awful. And the services went for three hours. Some of you go, oh, for the good old days. Thank you, Jesus. The mind can only handle what the seat can endure. Amen. And, and, and I, I just think they were good days, but don't be thinking the old days were better. And thank God for what he did in the past. But the Bible says, sing unto the Lord a new song. Amen. Amen we're still singing old songs God's going please get a new song it's like to God it's like you know if you've only got one song on your radio playing and you're driving 20 hours in the car that's what it sounds like to God when we keep singing the same song amen but it says for it is not wise to ask such questions makes me wonder what are some other questions that aren't wise to ask I'm going to do a series on that one of these days I'm looking forward to hearing myself on that one Or for instance, what about the time two brothers went up to Jesus and were trying to get Jesus to answer a question about the settlement of their inheritance? And there was a dispute and they went to Jesus. Jesus, could you please decide for us? We can't get to an agreement. Would you step in? Would you involve yourself in our mediation? And Jesus went, absolutely not. He refused to answer their question, But he did challenge about the love of money, I might add. Like, I want you to think about this. So Mark chapter 8, look what Jesus does. Jesus flips the whole script. We're asking God questions. We're asking questions, why were the old days better, which isn't wise. But look what Jesus does. In Mark chapter 8, verse 17, aware of their discussion, Jesus asked them, why are you talking about having no bread? And look what he says. Do you still not see or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Here is Jesus asking, uh, asking the disciples, Why are you talking about there being no bread? Haven't you learned by now, I am the bread of life? Haven't you seen now that I can provide? Are your hearts still so hard that you're worrying about provision when I am here and I am the provider? And I want to challenge us today. I think God sometimes walks wondering, you and I, why are you fretting about your daily food? He is your provider. He will meet all your needs according to his riches and his glory. And Jesus actually goes further and he goes, hey, if you're still struggling with provision, you've probably got a hard heart. You need to keep your heart soft and tender because I will meet your needs. I will supply. I am the bread of life. Come on, somebody. And so I love it because God's asking you and I questions about where we're at with our hearts but let's go now to Daniel 5, and I think the greatest example that I can think of to launch off this series on why is Daniel chapter 5, and it's a king called King Belteshazzar. Everybody say Belteshazzar, Belshazzar, some people call him. It says, he had a great banquet for a thousand of his nobles and drank wine with them. That's a lot of people, isn't it? And when he was drinking the wine, he gave orders to bring in the gold and the silver goblets that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken from the temple. Most people believe it wasn't really his father. It was just a figure of a, a transition of leadership. And it says that his father had taken from the temple in Jerusalem. And so that the kings and his nobles and his wives and his concubines might drink from them. Now right there, stop. That's sacrilegious. Just stop for a minute. That's blasphemy. That is the ultimate form of arrogance, that this king would actually have the arrogance to say, let's go into the temple that, where the goblets that we took from the, from the temple of God in Jerusalem, and let's bring them into my court, and here we're going to toast the gods of gold and of silver and of wood and of bronze. We're going to mock the God of the Israelites. We're going to show, I'm going to to show my superiority, that even this God, the God of Israel, must bow to the strength of me, the great King Belshazzar. That is arrogance on steroids. And to think that you're going to get away with this, that God is going to be silent. You got it? Can you see what he's doing? So they go get the gold, then they bring him in. And the Bible says, they then toasted the gods of silver and of bronze and they drank the wine and they praised the gods of gold, silver, wood, and bronze. And look at verse five. Suddenly, everybody say suddenly. I love that word suddenly, because think about it now. God does some things in sometimes a pressure cooker. It's a slow cook. But every now and again, there's a suddenly that God does something. This is one of those times. You ought to look up the word suddenly and see what the times the Bible does something suddenly. Everything's going normal. Everything's going on. And then suddenly, and look what the Bible says, a finger. I love this. Suddenly the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall. God was the first graffiti artist. He's writing graffiti near the lampstand in the royal palace and the king watched their hand the wrote. Now look what happens. It says, and his face turned pale and he was so frightened that his legs became weak. Look, and his knees were knocking. Suddenly, but I'm thinking to myself and it says, and there was writing on the wall. Look what it says, next verse. It says here, And the king summoned the enchanters and the astrologers and the diviners, and he said to these wise men of Babylon, Get now, whoever reads the writing and tells me what it means, will be clothed in purple, have a gold chain like Mr. T from the A-team, placed around his neck. Sometimes you just say something for some people. Young people, you have no idea what I just said. And, and I'll put a gold chain on his head. He'll be Conor McGregor on steroids and placed around his neck and he will be made the third highest in the rule of the kingdom. But the Bible says all the king's horses and all the king's men couldn't put Humpty together again. They couldn't read the writing on the wall, the enchanters, the magicians, none of them could. The king, the Bible says, his face grew even more pale. His legs were given out from underneath him. He is freaked out because God wrote on the wall. And I'm thinking to myself, church, would you agree with me? The writing was on the wall before there ever there was writing on the wall. If you would be arrogant enough to think you could go into the temple of Jerusalem and get what that which is sacred, holy emblems and instruments that is in the house of God and bring them into your man-made palace and think that you could defy the God of heaven and toast the gods of gold, of silver, wood and of bronze and actually think God will be silent. The writing was on the wall before the writing was on the wall. Does anybody understand what I'm saying here? Because you're all looking at me like a deer in the headlights. I just think, it's like someone says, how did I get this? How did I have this heart attack? I'm shocked. Look at you dying. Was that too hard? How did I lose my job? I'm shocked. You're never at work on time. You're not putting in the hours. You're not being fruitful or productive. Your presence on the job is worse than your absence from it. And you're shocked you lost your job. The writing was on the wall. Oh, okay, it's going to be like that, is it? Okay. And so look what the Bible says. And the queen says, no, king, relax. There is a man. How? Oh, thank God, there is a man. In your kingdom, the Bible says in verse 11, who has the spirit of the holy gods in him. And the time that your father was found to have insight, he, he was found rather, to have insight and intelligence, wisdom like that of the gods. Your father, King Nebuchadnezzar, appointed him chief of the magicians and the enchanters and the astrologers and the diviners. He did this because Daniel, whom the king called Belshazzar, was found to have a keen mind and knowledge and understanding and the ability to interpret dreams and explain riddles and solve difficult problems. Call for me, Daniel. So now comes, enters Daniel. And Daniel reads the writing on the wall and explains to the king what it meant. Many, let me say many. Many, that's the first word that was written on the wall. That word many, watch this, means God has numbered your reign. Did you hear it? And he's bringing your reign to an end. You're done. Your days are numbered. But I wanna tell you, The writing was on the wall before God ever wrote in the wall. Come on, somebody. Your days are numbered. Did you ever see somebody in a job and you think your days are numbered? You ever seen somebody in a marriage and you think, ooh, that marriage's days are numbered? You're very quiet this morning. Is this Wave Church? I just wanna check, 1,000, am I in the wrong building? 1,000 North Great Neck Road, are we all good? Praise the Lord. Okay, so like, you know, you just, you just see the way it gets. So your days are numbered. And then it says tackle, ever say tackle. Okay, that means, listen to this, you've been weighed on scales and you've been found wanting. Do you know what God's saying? Hey, King, your days are numbered and you're a lightweight. I put you on my scales and you don't carry the weight of the responsibility and the accountability and the authority that you have like you should. You're a show pony. You're just trying to strut and look good. But God says, that's enough now. I've I've numbered your days. I have weighed you, amen? Like the Bible talks about a husband is the head of his wife. Don't be a lightweight, lead your family. Come on somebody. Praise on this. Somebody better clap. I feel like I'm. And then it says Perez. Let say Perez. It says your kingdom will be divided and be given away in two different arenas. And so I'm thinking to myself, I wonder in our lives, can we read the writing on the wall? So we're asking questions why? When in actual fact, the answer is right in front of us. Yeah. The writing's on the wall. I actually teach this to pastors. Can you read the writing on the wall of your church? And I talked about maybe what church should look like today and what leadership should look like today. And they go, why isn't this thing moving? Why aren't we seeing growth? Why aren't we seeing increase? I'm going, well, maybe the writing's on the wall. Amen. And sometimes in church life, in our own individual lives, we're asking questions. God, how'd this happen? Why'd that happen? And the truth is, the writing is on the wall. It just might need a Daniel to come and help us read the writing on the wall. Come on, somebody. I'm preaching better than you're listening. I'm just telling you right now. (laughs) Praise the Lord. I know you're listening. Everyone's going to come up to you. Oh, we were listening, Pastor. I know, but you could smile while I preach. Some of you, you should go to Vegas and play poker you'd be good because I couldn't read your face in a million years. You could have a full, I could be preaching full house sermon and I would never know. What are you doing? I'm just doing to you what you're doing to me. Are you ready for it? Here's a couple of thoughts. These are, these are kind of basic, but stay with me for a minute. The writing is on the wall. For any person who's got a good management on this one, I want to commend you. And I want to affirm to you what a good job you're doing. But for everybody else, I want you to hear this. The writing is on the wall if you spend more than you earn. The writing's on the wall. And the problem in today's world and culture, we often can't even, even, if we don't have a good handle and and idea and tracking of where our money goes, Because we have so many different expressions of expenses and we don't really know what we're spending. And we've got credit card debts and we've got student loans. Then we've got all these other, you know, Target cards, why anybody would shop in Target in today's world. That's one store I won't set foot in anymore. I've just gone, I'm not a guy that pickets things. That's not me. But I am not getting behind something that is just so damaging and reinforcing and arrogant to support a narrative that is so contrary to the wisdom of Scripture. Can anybody say amen? amen? I'm getting fired up just thinking about that. The writing's on the wall right there. But if you spend more than you earn, no amount of tithing is going to help you. Come on, somebody. And you can say, but I tithe. Yes, and you should. But if you're spending more than you're earning, The writing's on the wall, my friend. Now you should tithe, but you should have a budget. You should know where your money's coming in. You should know how much is coming in and you should know how much is going out. That's called cash flow. amen? And I wanna challenge you, if you don't have, like for instance, I'm thinking things like, you know, the writing's on the wall in terms of, here's a scripture, Proverbs 21 verse 20. In the house of the wise are stores, everybody say stores. Of choice food and of oil in the house of the wise. Listen to this: there are stores. That's not just a little, a little bit, but the Bible says there is stores of choice food. Amen. And it says, and of oil. But a foolish man, watch, devours all that he has. Listen to this scripture: Proverbs twenty-one, verse five. The plans of a diligent man. Leads to profit as surely as haste leads to poverty. So, if you have no budget, you have no restraint on where your money's going, you have no savings, and you're not tithing, can I tell you the writing is on the wall? Come on, somebody. And I'm just here to challenge you today. Come on, you can get help. On our Wave Church platform, there's all sorts of great teachings about how to do a budget, how to do a cash flow, how to manage your finances, how to rein in your expenses. It's all there. It's right there. And the answers are there for you if you'll be challenged by this message today and stop asking yourself, how do I get out of trouble? How How do I get in this situation? And start looking for the answers. Number two, this one's massive. The writing's on the wall if you don't respect time. The writing is on the wall if you and I do not respect time. Listen to Psalm 90 verse 12. Teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. What did the Bible say? Hey, the king's, God said to the king, your days are numbered. I wonder whether we respect time. I wonder whether we just take one day is as good as the next. I wonder, you know, when it comes to procrastination, let's make sure we don't keep putting things off. Let's be people who get things, in, get things done now. Let's be people who know the difference between the important and the urgent. Amen? I, 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 you know, some of you don't like me talking about it, but I'm not going to change. I'm your pastor. And as long as I'm your pastor, I'm going to challenge you about being punctual to the house of God, at work, being a person of your word, turning up. Here, If you want to be a successful business person today, you want to know how to do it? Turn up when you say you're going to turn up. Amen? I remember one time I had somebody who was going to come to my house. Five different days he promised he was going to come. I waited every one of the five days. And I got so frustrated. I was like, dear God, turned out to be the nicest guy, did the best job in the world. But the truth is, that's not a good taste in your mouth. Amen? So you've got to learn to respect time. If you keep turning up late and leaving early and not working hard, taking time off, not only will you not get promoted, you may very well lose your job. I say to young people today, I think you've got an advantage over my generation like never before. All you've got to do in today's world is be that little bit more resilient. Just work that little bit harder and you will stand out. Because we live in a very soft, delicate world. And if you can just go, I'm gonna be more resilient than the average person. I'm gonna do that a little bit more than the average. I promise you, you have got an advantage like nobody else. Praise the Lord. Okay, I'm just gonna keep on preaching. Okay, write this down. You can't save time, you can only spend it. You can't save it. I've never saved a second in my life. Are you hearing me? but you spend it. And where, so for instance, if you spend your whole life watching TV on the internet, on social media, you will be weighed and you will be found wanting. Amen. Matter of fact, the Bible says that kind of person, even what they have will be taken away from them. And then they go, how this happen? The writing was on the wall. Just got to respect time. Turn to the person next to you. This is for the people behind us. He's not talking to us. Amen? Okay, if you're always eating wrong and you're going to bed late and you abuse your body, can I tell you something? It will catch up with you. Amen? The writing is on the wall. I remember one time this friend of mine, and I do mean he was a good friend of mine. I want to give it in context. He he had a massive heart attack. I went to visit him in the hospital. And he's going, Pastor, Pastor, pray for me. Rebuke the devil. He's trying to kill me. This guy had a real challenge with his weight. And it wasn't from some physiological thing. He just generally loved food. And he loved all the wrong kind of food. He goes, would you rebuke the devil? I said, yes, but I might need to rebuke the knife and fork. <laughs> and you can think the devil's trying to take you out. And don't get me wrong, I'll pray for him and I did pray for him, amen? But the writing's on the wall. How could this happen to me? Writing's on the wall. Okay, very quiet in here, we'll go to number three. Okay, I feel like I'm about to be stoned. That's how I feel right now, Just <laughs> praise the Lord. Okay, number three, the writing's on the wall if you won't forgive others. Church, listen to me. I think some of us, when I preach this, somehow think this is for someone else. I think sometimes I think we give ourselves a hall pass. I haven't a right to be offended. That's a good sermon. Everybody else should practice it. Now, don't think, I don't think you're that hypocritical, but I do think we can actually miss this. So I wanna show you what the Bible says about what forgiveness is. Colossians 3, bear with each other And forgive one another, and if anyone has a grievance against someone else, forgive as the Lord forgave you. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. Your example is Christ who did no wrong, who knew no sin and became my sin and your sin so that we might live. If you have a grievance against someone, forgive as the Lord forgave you. Forgiveness is not giving that person who did something to you the ability to say they are right or anything like that. But when you have unforgiveness, it's like you drinking poison and expecting the other person to die. Because unforgiveness is toxic to your bones. It is sickness to your body. And holding it is only going to create more problems for you. Come on, somebody. Matthew 6, verse 14. For if you forgive other people when they sin against let me start that again. For if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father, watch this, will forgive you. And just in case you don't know what that means, he adds to it. But if you do not forgive others of their sins, your father, look, your father will not forgive yours. That's challenging. Because we're talking about people in the house of God who love the idea that we've been forgiven of our sins. But we also like to hold on to our bitterness and our resentment and our unforgiveness and think somehow that God's okay with it. Yet God says, if you can't forgive someone else, I will not forgive you. I don't know about you, but I don't want to have unforgiveness of God. I want God to forgive my sins. When I start trying to get a reason to justify I can hang on to unforgiveness, I just go, oh no, I have so much I need to be forgiven of. Come on, I am not hanging on to that. Now just turn to the person next to you and say, this is definitely for the front row. This is not for us. Amen. I've said this many times, you become what you cannot forgive. You become. As a little boy, I used to look at my mom and dad when they were drinking, and I used to look at them and say, but when I grow up and I get married, I will never do to my kids what they've done to me. At the age of 13, I was drinking. Because you become what you cannot forgive. By the grace of God, the age of 17, I got saved. And then at the age of 20, I got married. And then we had kids. And thank God, my kids will never have to deal with that baggage. They're going to deal with the baggage of me being their dad any day of the week. I got that, but that's not one of the baggages they're gonna carry. Come on, somebody. You become what you cannot forgive. You are tied to that thing. You are bound to that thing. The Bible talks about a root of bitterness. And listen to what it says. It doesn't just defile you, but it defiles many. Because what happens is that toxicity comes out of you. That unforgiveness comes out of you. You're inflaming things that you don't want to inflame and you're causing others. And when you got unforgiveness, listen, you're hurt, you're jaded, you're suspicious. And that is not how God wants you and I to live. Praise the Lord. Okay, here we go. Number four, and I'm done. The writing is on the wall if you don't choose your words carefully. The writing is on the wall. If you don't choose your word, I'm actually very deliberate about my words. Very deliberate. I am very intentional when I, not just preaching, I'm talking about conversation in life. Now Australians, if you haven't already figured it out, are a little on the, what's the word? Um, They got a sarcastic sense of humor. Have you figured that out yet? Anybody figured that out yet? They can be, as far as American Christianity, Australians can be a little crass sometimes. They don't mean to be. I think it's because it's more of a secular country than what America is, although I do think that's changing in America now. But so Australians, so because of that, coming to America, there were certain words, if you'll permit me. When I first came here, I didn't know what cuss words. I didn't know, can I say this, damn was considered a cuss word. I remember a preacher said, we weren't even allowed to call the Hoover Dam the Hoover Dam. We had to call it the Hoover Water Stopper. <laughs> I, I remember one time in Australia, I had a guy who worked for Kenneth Copeland and who was uh, Kenneth Hagin, two of the great faith preachers. And I remember I'd come back from the gym, i come into the office, go, oh man, my legs are killing me. And this guy go, I cut that confession off. And I go, oh, shut up. I'm just saying I had a good workout. I can really feel it in my legs. You don't speak those negative words. Your legs are killing your brother. That's not the. Listen, I'm not talking about legalistic, strain out the net, swallow the camel, choosing of your words, where if you just say, you know, I mean, if you have a bad day, you can have a bad day and still be a man of faith. Amen. It's been a bad day. A few things have gone wrong, but God is good. He is with me, no weapon formed against me shall prosper. I'm walking through the valley and the shadow of death. I'm not gonna camp in it. Amen. So I'm not talking about hyper faith, you know, choosing your words, but I'm just about you are intentional and strategic about what is coming out of your mouth. Let me show you, Proverbs 18, verse 21. The tongue has the power of life. And of death. Just read James chapter 3 and look at the power of the tongue. Whew. It has the power of life ending. You know, the guy said, Sticks and stones can break my bones, but names will never hurt me. He's a liar from the pit of hell. Because I want to tell you, words have life and death in them. If you don't believe me, just look at a marriage where someone has not kept up to their word and the pain and the agony and the heartache that is created by somebody just not keeping their promise. Amen? So you gotta know the power of your words. You gotta be intentional in what's coming out of your mouth. Sharon and many years ago decided we're going to hold each other accountable to if we start talking negative. And honestly, to this day, we still pull each other up. I go, honey, we don't talk like that in this house. Oh, it's very quiet. <laughs> we'll never do that. We'll never afford that. That'll never happen. No, no. Life and death and the power of the tongue. So we choose. We say we choose not. Like I mean, when we first got married, I got my first pay packet as a youth pastor. I went, I'm done, I can't afford this, I'm, I'm going to go broke. I can't even pay my rent. I mean, I couldn't do anything. We were believing God to have a family. We were believing God to buy a house. And Sharon, when she found out what I was getting paid as the youth pastor, she goes, we'll never buy a house. I said, buy a house. Honey, you're working for the rest of your life. <laughs> we're both going to have to have two incomes here. And then one day I just felt like, no, life and death in the power of the tongue. You say, what do you mean? I said, well, so now on we're gonna say we choose not to buy a house now. What's the difference? Life and death. See, our saying, we'll never be able to do that, puts our finances in control of our faith. But our saying, we choose not to says, my faith is in control of everything. And Jehovah Jireh is my provider. Amen? Amen. Are Are you catching this? And we still, to this day, about church, about the things of God, the dreams that we still have out there in the future. Sharon would love us sometime in the future to be able to buy a little cabin out there in Charlottesville just for a little getaway place. as grandparents with the grandkids. We ain't moving, trust me, but just a little getaway place. And every time she keeps looking, I just, oh, I a honey, can you dial down your expectations of what that's gonna look like? She's doing it to me again. She is stressing me out, but she's got faith for it. And I know her, this will happen. With or without me, this will happen. (laughs) You say, what are you trying to say? Deuteronomy 30, look at verse 11. Now, what I'm commanding you today is not too difficult for you. It's not beyond your reach. God's saying, I'm giving you a command today, and it's not that hard. It's kind of simple. It's not beyond your reach. You ever seen that guy in the in the in the prison cell? And he's in he's in prison unjustly, and the keys to the cell are just out of his reach. And he takes his belt buckle off. And you know, you know sometimes I feel like we think God's like that—that that God's just out of our reach. And it says, look what it says here. It says, I love what it says here. It says, it's not in heaven, so you have to ask who will ascend into heaven, get it, and proclaim it that we may obey it. Nor is it in the, beyond the sea. I love when translation says, nor is it in hell. See, we got this idea of, too many Christians have got this, this laissez-faire. Well, if God wanted me to be healed, he'd have done it by now. If God wanted me to speak in the heavenly prayer language, he'd have given it to me. Well, if God's going to do it, then God's going to do it. And we have this laissez-faire, naive idea of the sovereignty of God. That it's all God. It's all up to God. And that if God wants it to happen, God will do it. Or the other thing we have is on the other side of the camp, we got people over here and they're going, well, the reason I don't have it is because of the devil, and we got to bind the devil. we got to, you know, and I'm thinking it's not all God and it's not all the devil. Look what God said. This is not too hard. It's not beyond your reach. You don't have to go over to heaven and proclaim it or down to the depths of the sea to proclaim it. Look at verse 15. I have set before you today life and prosperity, death and and destruction, look at verse 19, this day I call the heavens and earth, and this day in Wave Church, on the first Sunday of October, I am calling Wave Church, one church in many rooms, and it says, to set before you life and death, blessing and cursing, and here, how good is God, just in case you don't know which one to choose, he tells you, now, Choose life. It's not that hard. Well, maybe God wants me to have this sickness. No, He does not. Well, maybe God wants me to live in lack. No, He does not. And God says, listen to it free will. Stop asking me. Take a look at yourself. I didn't make you a robot. You have the power of choice. And you have what you have in your life today as a result of the series of choices you've made today. It's not all God. It's not all the devil. It's you. It's me. Steve, I, I didn't choose this sickness, no, but you chose your diet. Steve, I didn't choose this sad and sorry marriage, no, but you choose your words, you choose your, your time and your value. Amen. Choose Steve. I didn't choose my kids who are teenagers to be away from God. No, but you chose not to bring them to the house of God and teach them to have have a love for God and bring up a child when they're young, when they're old, they won't depart from it. You made some choices because God gave you free will. Can we go there? Can we go there? So I'm wanting to pray for people today in every campus, understand it's not all God, it's not all the devil, it's you, it's me. And we got to make sure, catch it again, we don't spend more than we earn. We got we to make sure we value time. We got to make sure we choose to live in forgiveness. Some someone say amen. And we understand that God's given you and me the power of choice. We're asking him and he's going, but you have a free will. Write this down. I'm done with my last, last, last comment before I finish. <laughs> when we get to heaven, there'll be no clocks. I'll be so happy. <laughs> Write this down. If you say, Steve, can you give me your pregnant sentence? Any good preacher who doesn't have a pregnant sentence doesn't know what a good preacher is. If you can't sum your sermon up in one sentence, you don't know what you're talking about. So here's my, here's my pregnancy. I have a pregnant sentence for every sermon I preach. I just often don't tell you what it is, but I know what it is. This is my pregnant sentence. Men decide their habits. And those habits decide your future. It's got nothing to do with God. It's got nothing to do with devil. You decide your habits. And your habits will decide your future. Did you receive the word? Come on, give the Lord a hand.